You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today we have author Caitlin Moscatello, who wrote the book See Jane Wynn, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics. It's a captivating first-hand account of how women in the resistance running their first campaigns in 2018 won elections to earn positions of power in both state and federal office at the conclusion of last year's historic blue wave election. But before we start, I'd like to ask you to check out the link to my new book series, Meet the Candidates 2020, authored by this podcast producer, Grant Stern. I'm the series editor, and each book starts with an essay that I've written about the top six Democratic candidates for president. The books are a great portrait of each candidate. Grant looks under every rock, search engine, and even into the Internet Archive to paint that portrait with lots of facts, policy, and the history that you truly need to understand the top Democratic candidates for president in 2020. Check out meetthecandidates2020.com to see all of the books. All six are on shelves today in your local bookstores, Barnes & Noble, or on Amazon. And you can find our blog posts and more information on Twitter at mtc2020series. That's at mtc2020series. Caitlin Moscatello didn't know in advance if any of the women she followed on the campaign trail for C.J. Wynn would, in fact, win the races. She began following some of them even before they declared their campaigns. In the end, her inspiring book cataloged the victories of all four women in her book. Caitlin went into the writing process not knowing if she'd be writing a tough story or a happy one, but she finished by writing a user manual for women or really anyone who wants to participate in American democracy. We spoke during her whirlwind press tour late last month, and she shared hard-earned wisdom gleaned by spending two long years reporting about Florida's first Iranian-American state-elected official, about the former CIA officer, who's now called Congresswoman, about Tennessee's youngest state representative, and about the first Dreamer elected to New York's State Assembly. Please take a listen to my interview with Caitlin Moscatello. I'm here with Caitlin Moscatello, whose new book published by Dutton, See Jane Wynn, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics, just hits store shelves nationally. She's a Manhattan-based freelance columnist for New York Magazine's The Cut, and her work has been featured in Time, Slate, Salon, Cosmo, Elle, GQ, Vanity Fair, and a lot more. You can find her on Twitter at Kate Mosk, which is C-A-I-T-M-O-S-C. Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi, thanks for having me. How are things going with the book so far? It has been it has been a, a whirlwind uh, forty eight hours, thirty six hours. I mean, time is a circle right now. Right. I've seen a lot of lot of reports, like a lot of positive press about it, and it's, a, yeah, it's really it's so good great coverage. to hear. I mean, I re, you know I reported this book over over two years. I've been living with it for two and a half years, and so to have it out in the world is um, immensely exciting. Um, and a bit surreal, definitely. Yeah, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what inspired you to write? It's, I mean, it's a fascinating account, as you said, for two years about, uh, I guess, the resistance mixed with Americans leading a, a wave of women to run for office in 2018. But tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the account. Yeah, how we got here, right? So right. it was um, after the 2016 elections, it was obviously a pretty dark time. Um, you know, there were some things happening. There were some actions taking place. We knew that people were flooding, uh, you know, 
Planned Parenthood and ACLU, they were getting so many donations and people were acting in that way. And then there was the Women's March. And so millions of people, not just around the country, but around the world, were taking to the streets, which was really amazing to see. But around that time, um, in, in very early 2017, there were also these early reports that groups like Emerge America and Emily's List, that they were getting like inundated with women who were newly interested in running for office. And this was not a typical problem for them. I mean, when I talked to um, a lot of the leaders at Emerge America, they would say, you know, in a typical year, they were just desperate to recruit people and to like get women in and get them involved and trying to build this pipeline uh, of, of women and getting them into political office. And it was a lot of work. It was really hard. And all of a sudden, there were just thousands of women who were interested in running. And I kind of thought, maybe, maybe this is the light. Maybe this is like the, the bright spot in this dark mess that we're in. And so I was just compelled to follow it. I started calling different organizations that train women to run. I started talking to women themselves. Um, And what that allowed me to do is I was actually able to follow some of the women's journeys from even before they officially decided they were going to run and really show through their experiences um, what it is like to to campaign while female and in this current, you know, political environment um, that we're in. I did not know, of course, when I started reporting that this was going to be what it was. So I, I, this is sort of a funny story, but like when I went out to publishers with this, I knew that there were women running. I had um, a great list of candidates that I was speaking with. And I said, there's a story here. This journey is worth worth telling. But I would sit at these like long conference tables at these fancy publishers. And I was sort of, uh, you know, with my proposal and I would say, look, um, I I don't actually know if this is an inspiring story or a depressing story. And I don't know who the the candidate, the main characters will be because I don't know who's going to make it on the ballot, um, much less win. And um, the fact that the book ever happened, I just think is pretty remarkable. Dutton was like, yes, we are in. We want to do this. And I just had their full support. And I ended up, um, of course, the story just blew up over the, the course of my reporting. And um, what we now know, um, election night, uh, 2018, historic wins for women, more women now in Congress than ever before, more women in state legislatures than ever before. Um, and so... Yeah, it went from it was actually originally called C. Jane Run, and we changed it to C. Jane Win because all the main characters ended up winning. Right. No, that's uh, which is also fascinating. Did it did it make you a little nervous to spend two years writing about a book that uh, you know maybe the election could have turned out differently? You, you know what I mean? Like if, if oh, not, absolutely. Not to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was a this was a. Um, this is a this is a, a pretty terrifying process. I mean, I'm an independent journalist, so I, I write a lot for New York Magazine's The Cut. Um, I've written for you know numerous numerous other outlets. Um, but there were two things that were sort of challenging about it. One, it was just a moving target. The entire time, I I, I really didn't know the story I was telling. I was just reporting and reporting and reporting. So I have. So many things. I mean, there's so many interesting things that I could have put in this book, but, you know, I had to eventually create a book and really formulate it. And so there's a lot of reporting that went on the cutting room floor. Um, Chasing a moving target is is very, um, very difficult. And then the other thing was that once election night happened, um, that's when I sort of knew what we were in. I knew it was an inspiring story and not a depressing story. And so I actually um, ended up, I wrote most of the book in eight weeks. Wow. Um, and going through that many, and, and I, this is, I mean, I don't know how interesting this will be to readers. And of course, women do, you know, seeing women do remarkable things across the country, I guess this is sort of nothing, but I had a newborn. And so it was just this crazy process of um, not sleeping at all. And then writing, you know, 12, 
14 hour days. Um, but I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of the work and uh, I hope I hope people like it. Find out more about Meet the Candidates 2020, my new book series of voter guides authored by Dworkin Report producer Grant Stern. It's the only place you can read my opinion and a factual portrait of each major Democratic candidate in one place. Buy the book now at the link inside this episode's notes at grantstern.com or your local Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. You followed four women who ran for office in blue, red, and purple states of New York, Tennessee, Florida, and Virginia. Before we talk about them individually, can you tell our listeners who they are and what led you to choose these women specifically? Yeah. So when I was going into this, I knew some things for certain. So, and I write about this a little bit in the intro, but, um, you know, I am, I am a, I am a college educated white woman living in a progressive city. Um, that is not that interesting in terms of, oh, I'm just going to stay around here and kind of like highlight what's going on. I wanted to talk to a diverse group of women. I wanted to talk to women running in, in different parts of the country, running for various levels of office. I wasn't just interested in Congress. I was also wanted to see and uh, get the experiences of women running uh, in their state in state races, because those are hugely, hugely important, as you know, when we're talking about voting rights, when we're talking about gerrymandering, when we're talking about, um, you know, reproductive rights, abortion access. So that's all ha- a lot of that's at the state level. So I wanted to um, see the women who were in that fight as well. So I ended up um, the four candidates who are the focus of the book, um, and they all won. So I'm going to say them, I'm going to say their names with their official titles now. Um, but these were all just women, you know, who kind of threw their hats in the ring um, from the beginning. So there is Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger, um, CIA operative, mom of three. Um, she's the one who ousted Dave Bratt, an ardent Trump supporter, Freedom Caucus member in Virginia. Um, she is the first woman to represent her district uh, ever in Congress, and she is the first Democrat since 1968. Um, then you have uh, Anna Eskamani. She was a um, worked at Planned Parenthood, was a huge activist in her community, ran an incredibly bold, uh, progressive, truly progressive campaign in a purple district and won by a huge margin. London Lamar. Um, I love London's story in the book. London is so much fun. She's a young woman in her 20s. She had been involved um, with YDA and she um, was very, I will say, she was very politically engaged before she decided to run. Um, you know, she ran this really grassroots, I mean, she was out there canvassing by herself in her district day after day and is now the uh, youngest uh, black woman in the Tennessee state legislature. She's like really, really holding it down uh, for women of color in her state in this very conservative, a very white male uh, governing body. So that's been awesome to see. And then in New York, we have um, New York Assemblywoman Catalina Cruz, uh, whose story in the book, I've had multiple people tell me that they've cried reading her chapter. She is um, the first dreamer elected to New York, uh, elected to office in New York, and only the third in the country. And, um, and has been doing great work. She's now on, you can see her on billboards now in Times Square because she's been um, hugely instrumental in talking about her own experiences um, with child sex abuse in helping get legislation passed uh, for victims of, of, of child sex abuse here in New York. Right. And, and obviously one of the women you wrote about now, Florida State Rep. Anna Eskamani, uh, had probably the longest odds of any candidate. I know that all of them, they're tough races, I think. But uh, she's a progressive who ran a district last held by a Republican and became the first Iranian-American to serve in state legislature. Uh, what, what in your mind made her candidacy different and effective? 
Well, Anna was a true, true grassroots candidate. Um, she is also so much fun. And I, I think this really comes through in the book. She is so passionate. Um, and uh, her journey is really incredible. I think her, honestly, I think a lot of that was just her being her authentic self. And we saw this not just with her, but with candidates across the country. She was unapologetic about her stances. She was very clear with who she was, why she was running. She was very good at getting that message across. Um, she was also, when I say, I mean, she, her joke about it is like, I have the tan lines to show for this. I mean, you talk about knocking door, you know, canvassing and knocking doors. We saw this with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, uh, here in New York. There's sort of this, that famous pair of shoes, right, that she uh, completely wore out um, canvassing her district. Anna was very much in that line, too. She was out there um, getting on every doorstep and not just Democrats, by the way, she because she knew in her district that she was going to have to engage with independents. She had to engage with Republicans. And she was really, really great at doing that. But with without changing her policy position. She never wavered on that. She listened to people. She made them feel heard. Um, but she was very true to what she believed in. And she actually had amazing fundraising efforts. So like one of the big barriers, of course, and one of the big challenges um, for women running, but I, but specifically first-time female candidates, is this fundraising part. Um, and Anna was able to, I mean, she just was able to get so many small donations, so much support around her. Um, and she, I, that's when I think the, uh, her Republican opponents were really seeing her as this huge threat. I mean, she had over, I don't want to get this wrong. I, I want to say it was like over $300,000 um, in her, in the campaign bank. And that was, gosh, I mean, that might've been even like five months before the election. I mean, she, for a state race, like she was really, really incredible. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a lot of money. I, I used to fundraise, which is an awful job. But uh, oh, so you know, yeah, it is, it, is, it looks awful. <laughs> Reporting on it, I was like, this looks terrible. Yeah, yeah. In my former life as a campaign operative for over a decade, where I got to travel, you know, the world, and by by the world, I mean, you know, to different districts throughout the country that uh, you know were were just like Abigail's, or sorry, Congresswoman Span Spanberger's. Um, and that's another woman that you wrote about, uh, now, yeah. now, and obviously, um, has a very unique background as a former CIA officer. Can you tell our listeners how she had to manage motherhood and, and politics? It was actually, this was something that I think Abigail, uh, Spamberger did incredibly well, um, throughout her campaign. So, uh, we talked about this early on. I was talking to her even before she officially decided to run. And there were, of course, a couple things uh, with her that she was concerned about. But privacy was a, was a very, very big factor. You know, having been a former CIA operative, she had been, I mean, talk about living sort of a, a private life. Like her friends didn't know even what she did for a living. Um, so to go from that to putting herself in the public spotlight. And then, of course, in doing so, just as a nature of campaigning, also putting her family, including her three young daughters, in the spotlight, that was something that really weighed on her early in, the, in, early in her uh, campaign process. Um, and she was very prepared. So, and, there's re and there's reason for this. So there's research that says that you know, women with young children are judged much more than other candidates. Um, when it comes to running for office. So if you, it, voters actually tend to like candidates who have, 
have kids, um, but they typically like those candidates to be men or for those kids to be older. But this idea of like a mother who has young children, there's these concerns like, oh, well, she's is she going to be able to handle, you know, juggle the responsibilities of motherhood with those of being a lawmaker? Um, and so candidates know that they know this research. And so it's about preparing for it. And so originally I were sitting with Abigail and we were I was actually down in Virginia with her and we were uh, and she was telling me, she's like, well, I have an answer. And, you know, if, if, if when reporters ask me how I'm going to do it all, I'm going to say, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell them, like, I have I have in-laws nearby. I have family nearby. And so I have a big support system. And she was really prepped with how she would address this um, when asked about it because she knew she would be asked. But what was great to see was actually, so throughout the 2018 election cycle, we saw women just running so fully authentically as themselves, right? Like you had Louis Gresham Shirley, who she ran um, for Congress out on Long Island. She ended up losing, but she um, she was out at campaign events with her like very little kids. She had a two-year-old son at the time. And she was like, look, I have kids. This is who I am. So I'm going to talk about these. I'm going to I'm going to sit here. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to talk about policy positions. And you're going to see me being a mother. Um, and that happened throughout the country. Katie Porter, um, now Congresswoman Katie Porter, of course, out in California. Um, same thing. So with Ab- as more women, I think we're kind of really running um, as their true selves. Um, I think that kind of gave a lot of leeway. And so it was really interesting to see actually even by the end of Abby's campaign. I mean, not only were her kids sort of more visible and she was much calmer about that whole thing. Um, but she had them in a campaign ad where they were talking about their mom um, running for office on election night. Um, I was actually standing with her family when Abigail won, she was up on the stage and her daughters were right there behind her. And the, the photo that was in the press the next day was this great moment where actually her youngest daughter kept kind of crawling up to her legs and wanted to stand next to mom on stage. Um, and finally she just, you know, kind of, and Adam, her husband kept trying to pull, uh, pull their daughter back. And finally, Abby just turned and was sort of like, did that flick motion with the wrist where she was like, just, you know, give her to me, I'll take her and just continued without even missing a beat, Um, just put her daughter on her hip and kept giving her speech. And the people in the crowd, especially the women in the crowd went wild. And it was just, I think, this really telling moment of what had how much had how much had changed in in this election cycle, how women were really kind of throwing away that old playbook Um, and, you know, that was their congresswoman. And, you know, a lot of those women have kids. And what a powerful, important thing to see, right, that our leaders actually live lives and have experiences like the ones that we're having and what we're living. Um, so I loved that. That was one of the great moments. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, we've we definitely had a playbook in politics where it's like, you know, you try and frame someone in a certain way and, and the right way to do it nowadays is actually to be authentic. And, and I think that's that's spot on. This episode of The Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. When you did this writing and, and also the research and you were there uh, firsthand, uh, were there any lessons that you learned from from writing it, uh, CJ Run, and, and that you didn't expect to learn? Catalina, you know, she was running here in New York. She was she was not the party's pick, right? So here in New, in, in New York City, there's the Queen's Machine. It's very much what AOC had encountered, right? So in which she defeated in her primary um, in defeating Crowley. So with Catalina, it was the same thing. So the um, the Democratic establishment had 
selected a different candidate, was supporting a different candidate. And watching her run her campaign um, and being not only not her own party's pick. So to, it, w- it wasn't just that she wasn't the pick. They were actively campaigning against her. There was this powerful force <laughs> against her campaign. And, the, you know, she she just kept at it. Um, and she was really able to continuously energize the, the voters in her district, um, the grassroots people who were supporting her. Um, she fought for press. I mean, look, like, it, in these in these state races, like, yes, there were the women who ran for Congress had a huge amount of press coverage. But if you are running in these local or state races, like you have to fight for that coverage. And Catalina was just out there getting the word out. She stayed incredibly true to her message. And I guess this kind of goes back to what I was saying about Ana Escamani before um, is just that they, they were they were firm in who they were. They were so firm in what they believed, what their positions were, who they were as people and as candidates um, and that unwavering. So it wasn't this sort of bending of like, oh, okay, what are people responding to? What are they not responding to? Um, Okay, well, my party likes this person. Like, should I be trying to? uh, Are there any positions I should be sort of shifting or changing to that might make might get me some more support or anything like that? Um, That they were just they were unwavering, Um, and and part of that I do kind of wonder if that goes back to the fact that. you know, there's research that shows like from female candidates, we sort of expect the impossible. Um, voters respond to women. Um, we know that voters, res- they, they, they like when female candidates have, I don't want to say masculine traits, but it's kind of, you know, I'm going to say quote, air quotes, masculine traits of, you know, being authoritative and being strong. And, and then on the other side of it, they also expect uh, female candidates and they don't expect this of male candidates. Um, they respond well to uh, but they might say, you know, compassion or sort of this like nurturing role, or then again, what might fall under more traditionally, what are more traditionally considered feminine traits. Um, And so that's this like razor, razor thin line. And to have to kind of walk that and then while walking that also just being um, very, very clear and unwavering on what you stand for and what your campaign stands for. That is a exhausting task. You know, camp, as you know, campaigns are long. Um, and so just to walk that wire uh, the whole time and to continuously sort of be true to who she was and, and who she what she was about. Um, I, I really think that there's such a powerful message in that, like not only of what we learned in 2018, of course, but going forward into 2020 and, and beyond 2020. I think there's a lot of stuff in this book that, that candidates of any type, anyone running for office should read your book because this is this really does give insight on being who you truly are because people the american people specifically most of the time can read through the madness and they see genuine people at least from what i've what i've seen nowadays they look at them more as as people and not just what they should be but who they are so i'm definitely going to recommend everybody listening read the book uh, go buy it right now on amazon it's cj and win uh, is there anything else I haven't asked you about your book that you want to share with our listeners? I really just think, you know, this this book is it is about the state of American politics today in the sense that I wanted to examine who gets power in this country and when and why. Um, it is also it happened to end up being just incredibly inspirational because these women are really remarkable. And so I think there's, there's uh, a lot of takeaway in terms of one, you know, the lessons that we learned in 2018, the things that women continue to experience on the campaign trail, I don't want to act like, Oh, women won in 2018. And so we're totally done with sexism and misogyny when it comes to American politics. I mean, that is definitely not the case. I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing that play out in in the 2020 race as well. Um, But I, I, I think that the, the heart, 
of these women and their stories is really what powers this book through. And along the way, we get this much bigger story about women um, making huge gains. And that's in one year. So it's like, well, imagine what we can continue doing um, going forward. And in the last chapter of the book, um, the last person I did interview for this was was Secretary Hillary Clinton, um, because I had to talk to her. I said, well, Okay, you know, it was January 2019. I was about to hand the book in, and um, I said, I have to talk to the only woman who can speak to the experience of being a major party uh, nominee for president. And um, she was very candid with me. It's in the last chapter. Um, and we were very much talking about where we go from here. So, and I guess that's the big question, right? Where we go from here, we'll see. Award winning, uh, I guess, ooh, I'm going to. Uh, totally butcher that award-winning <laughs> journalist Caitlin Moscatello her book is see Jane win the inspiring story of the women changing American politics already the number one new release in women in politics on Amazon um, so make sure you check it out we'll have the link in our bio and Instagram and we'll have the links obviously posted beneath the episodes on Twitter um, thank you again for taking the time thank you for doing this book and and again for everybody if you're running for office if you're thinking about running for office if you want an inside look at, at everything that was going on on how we won in 2018 uh, check out this book uh, read it it's a must read and uh, thank you again for taking the time Caitlin I really appreciate it thank you I appreciate it thanks for your interest Thanks to Caitlin Moscatello. Make sure you pick up her book, See Jane Win, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics. I want to thank my producer, Grant Stern. And I want to thank all of you for all of your support. You can visit our website at dworkinreport.com. You can check out our book series that Grant and I wrote at meetthecandidates2020.com. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Onward!